You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 14. Focus today will be on verses 1 through 14. I'll be reading 1336 through 1414. Beginning in John 1336. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going? You cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us our troubled hearts, for our unbelief, for our little knowledge of all that is ours in your Son. No doubt, our hearts are troubled because, as revealed, Whenever we come to a text like, whatever you ask in my name, we think domestically about that. We think of our own kingdom, our own will, and we have not in mind the commission you've given us. May we see your Son as risen present with us by your Spirit, sending us out fully 
equipped to live for your glory in your Son with untroubled hearts now. In the strong name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen. Let not your heart, hearts be troubled. They were troubled. When Jesus purposed to return to Judea, Thomas said, let us go also that we may die with him. 11 and verse 16. Now at the supper, Jesus has told them, one of them will betray him. And at this they look at one another, 13 and verse 22, uncertain of whom he spoke. Matthew tells us that at this they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Matthew 26, 22. And on the hills of this, he's just told them that He will be with them only a little while longer, 13 and verse 33. Where he is going, they cannot come. These are men that he's called to himself with words like, follow me. And now he tells them, you cannot follow me. He's washed their feet those feet that have followed Him all these years. And now He tells them that not only will they not follow Him, but the other gospel accounts make it clear. He tells them they will all flee and abandon Him. Peter's no exception in his denial. If you're paying attention to John's gospel... You see these disciples are troubled, and Jesus tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. If you're paying attention, that should cause a reverent, hmm. Or if you're in a less reverent mood, wait a minute. Three times recently, John has told us Jesus was troubled. As they come back to Judea, they first stop off in Judea before coming to Jerusalem. In and out, looks like they were in and out during the Passion Week from Judea and Bethany. They first come to Bethany where Lazarus resided and he's died. And encountering Lazarus' sister Mary, we are told, when Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. You're meant to understand the cross is in view. The death and resurrection of our Lord, as you're looking at the death and resurrection of Lazarus in that moment, you see Jesus greatly troubled. The proof of it comes in chapter 12 and verse 27 when you hear our Lord cry out. John is using this word troubled again and again. Concerning our Lord, as we come to the cross, in 1227, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. And then you have Jesus' statement that one of the disciples would betray him, introduced by this narration, 13 and verse 1. After saying these things, Jesus, 13 verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Jesus is troubled, and now he just tells his disciples not to be. Why is that not hypocrisy? You intuitively, if you're the Lord's, you know it's not. But why is it not hypocrisy? I can see two reasons. First, the disciples are troubled ignorantly. Jesus is troubled knowledgeably. Second, 
They are troubled stemming from this ignorance. They are troubled in unbelief. Jesus is troubled in belief. But even so, Jesus right here is not admonishing them. Don't be troubled sinfully. Be troubled righteously. That's not what he's saying. He is troubled righteously. He's telling the disciples not to be troubled sinfully. But why is it that in this situation, he's saying this situation, rightly understood, me, I'm troubled. And that's righteous. For you to be troubled right now, it's unrighteous. Why is that so? And here is the glorious gospel answer of why a troubled Jesus can tell his disciples not to be troubled. And it's just that. It is a troubled Jesus who can tell his disciples not to be troubled. It is because Jesus is troubled that their hearts should not be troubled. It's because He goes to the cross that they need not face the wrath of God. His trouble is their comfort. His cross is their salvation. We don't look at the cross as a tragedy. The cross, for Christ, He looked towards it knowing He would bear the wrath of God. His soul is troubled. We don't look at the cross as a tragedy. It was conquest. By the cross, the Christ conquers. Tells them in 12, 31 and 32, by the cross, He will judge the world. The ruler of this world will be cast out and He will draw all the scattered children of God home. Jesus approaches the cross for the joy that was set before Him. He approaches it as a warrior Ready to triumph, but he's troubled. He's troubled, we've just seen, because his close friend will betray him. And he's troubled for the cup of wrath that he will take from the Father's hand. But for us, we are being given by John in his gospel eyes to see the cross rightly. They were too. But John's doing it more masterfully. It's hard to say it's more masterfully. In a way, he's trying to help us see what he failed to see. Even though he had every reason to see it himself. The journey back to Judea. You come to Bethany en route to Jerusalem. As far as how the narrative's building and the flow of it. The pit stop at Bethlehem prepares you for, at Bethany, excuse me, pit stop at Bethany prepares you for Jerusalem. They're part of a singular return to Judea for the purpose of the death and resurrection of our Lord. So Lazarus's grave prepares you for Jesus' tomb. You know that the one that they are intending to crucify is he who is the resurrection and the life. This isn't going to go well for him. They're just giving him a platform for him to demonstrate most gloriously who he is. We were told that Jesus was glad that Lazarus was dead. He says, I'm glad I was not there for your sake that you might believe. Believe what? Very soon after this, Jesus tells Martha to believe that He is the resurrection and the life. And now here Jesus is calling them once again, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Everything Jesus holds out to these disciples in this upper room are like sweet Gospel morsels of His broken body dipped in the blood of the new covenant. 
all these promises. He's calling for them not to look at the cross as a tragedy. He's calling them to realize this moment is gospel. This moment is good news. Let not your heart be troubled. This moment does not call for doubt. This moment does not call for troubled hearts. This moment calls for faith. Jesus is holding out to them the terror of the cross for the comfort of the gospel. It is a troubled Christ who can give comfort and no other. This verse is critical, not only for understanding our passage, you see, this verse is critical for understanding the whole of the upper room discourse. For instance, it's getting a hold of this verse Right here, let not your hearts be troubled. And that he's giving them gospel comforts of what is to flow from the cross. That helps you make sense of why Jesus would say something like, another comforter, speaking of the Spirit, being given to them. Why is he another comforter? Why does he speak of him in that way? Who is the comforter before them that another is being promised to them? He's the comforter. That's what he's doing in the upper room discourse. He is comforting them with what troubles him. And so it is that Jesus calls for them to believe in God the Father and believe in the Son, soon to promise the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Belief in the Father, as we'll see as we proceed along, is inseparable from belief in the Son, such that if you say you believe in the Father, but don't believe in the Son, you don't believe in the Father. That's what we've seen in so many earlier instances in all these interactions with Jesus and the Jews, the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They don't know the Father because they don't know the Son. But at this point, all I want you to notice in this verse, this point, is that faith is set opposite to a troubled heart. Troubled heart, contrary to faith. Saints, hear this gracious and freeing command this morning. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe. Believe. Christ was troubled, therefore you need not be. Why they should not be troubled is rooted in where Jesus is going. He's going to the cross, yes, but the cross is an avenue towards His Father. You are prepared for this by the narration 13 and verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. So, He's going to the Father, and He says He's going to the Father to prepare a place for them, and therefore, if He's going to prepare a place for them, will He not come again to receive them to Himself? This is why He said to Peter earlier, where I am going, you cannot follow Me now but you will follow me afterwards. Saints, have you ever found yourself wishing as you're reading the gospel that you could have been present? That, that you would know the Lord's physical presence in the same way they did? And really, there, there's something good there. You want to see, you, you just want to see Him and see Him in His glory and the revelation that they were privy to. But there's something that is underneath that there's something good, but how often is there something that what you're really longing for is, I wish He was physically present right here, right now, with me in the same kind of way He was with them. Long for His return. Long for His kingdom come. Long for His glory to be known. Long for that day when that's so. Yes, but do not hold out such vain longings as if he, were, if he were here physically. Then my heart would not be troubled. Instead, 
realize what the Lord is wanting to comfort His disciples with right here. He's wanting to comfort them with His absence. His not being with them is meant to be a comfort. They're to understand it that way. Grasp what Jesus is saying in this upper room. These promises are for you. You're not meant to long and say, if he was here, then my heart would not be troubled. You are meant rather to reason, he's not here, dear heart. Take courage. He is preparing a place for his people. And if he is preparing it, he will come again. How is it that he's preparing a place? It is not because during his earthly life he learned some skills from Joseph. He is not in heaven swinging a hammer. How is he preparing a place? As the Christ, as God's anointed prophet, priest, and king, he's preparing this place by his word. He's preparing this place by our high priest interceding for his people. He is preparing for this place as king. From heaven, the ascended Christ is gathering his people and building them into a spiritual temple. 1 Peter 2.5 You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. From heaven, our Lord is preparing a place for us by preparing us for that place. Listen to Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. How is it, if you're wondering, how is it that by gathering and sanctifying a people on earth, He's preparing a place for us in heaven? How is that so? Listen afresh now in light of that, to Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. The city is a people, the people of God. Adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Saints, let not your heart be troubled. Believe. His physical absence is your comfort. He is present at the right hand of the Father, interceding, gathering His people, assembling the saints, making them holy, and He will return to make all things new, and so we will ever be with the Lord. And then Christ comforts them. Not only is He going away to prepare a place for them, but verse 4, they know the way to where he is going. Thomas asked, How can they know the way when they don't know the destination? Verse 5. Thomas is the guy that if you're going on a trip, he wants to hold the map. And he wants to know the end destination. He wants to know the route. He wants to know where you are at all times along that route. We travel to heaven like children. We sit in the back seat. And if you want to know the way, it's mom and dad sitting in the front. You want to know the way? It's Christ 
We travel by faith. We don't need to know all the details. Faith knows the way. Christ is the way. The truth and the life. The destination is the Father. Verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. They know the way. And they know the where. Thomas has asked, we don't know the way. So we don't know where you're going. And Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. And I'm the way. This is the six I am statement that we've come to in John. And every one of them building up to this has said substantially the same thing. He is the bread of life, 635. He is the light of the world, 812. He is the gate of the sheep, 107. He is the good shepherd, 1011. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. There is no coming to the Father, no reconciliation with the Father, no forgiveness and redemption with the Father, save through Him. Peter put it this way at Pentecost. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. Or Paul, 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Modern man rails against that. That's narrow. Absolutely. It is narrow. But if you have sinned against the holy God of heaven and you deserve nothing but an eternal hell, And if in immeasurable grace, the God of heaven would give His only begotten Son to suffer the wrath due for sinners, would you think it narrow then that He wants to exclusively focus on All glory on His beloved Son as the only way of salvation. Saints, do not be troubled. Yes, you walk by faith, but you walk by faith in Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You do not know all your steps on this pilgrim way. You don't need to. You know Jesus, you know more than you need to know. You know far more than enough. You don't need to know the next step. You just need to walk forward in faith and obedience, seeking to honor Christ, knowing He's the way to the Father. In Thomas's question, he really spoke for all their troubled hearts, revealing that they need to know, they need to believe. This is not utter unbelief. This is weak faith. This is clouded knowledge. And Jesus is comforting them with truth that's meant to give them knowledge and thus strengthen their faith. And so it comes to this wonderful rebuke, verse 7. They know the way, it's Christ. Thus, they know also where, where He's going to the Father. And He says to them, verse 7, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Me. So the rebuke is, If you'd known me, you'd known the Father. The sweetness comes in it. He reassures them, you do know. From now on, you know Him and I've seen Him. And now it's Philip's turn to voice their troubled hearts. Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. The lesson completely went over their heads. So he repeats it again. Sweet rebuke. 
Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Back to verse 9. Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The reason they know the Father in knowing Jesus is because the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. The Son is the supreme revelation of the Father. John took great pains to impress just this upon us in the opening of this gospel. He meant for you to carry this, this very truth with you through the whole gospel so that you see what they were not seeing at this point. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, without Him was not anything made that was made, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled. It's a more strict translation, tinted among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, Let me make it plain. It'll become plain as I read it again. No one has ever seen God. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. No one has ever seen God in His essence and being. The only God, now referring to God the Son incarnate. He has made Him known. The author of Hebrews tells us long ago at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. The divine nature isn't divvied up into thirds. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They don't play tag to be present everywhere. The Son occupying this space, the Father occupying this space, and so on. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father. This is a doctrine so rich that theologians have not tired of coming up with names for it. From the Greek, we have the term perichoresis. Latin, circumincession, coherence is another, or most simply, we speak of this as the doctrine of mutual indwelling, that the persons of the Trinity mutually indwell one another. Wherever the Son is, the Father and Spirit are present. Wherever the Spirit is, the Father and Son are present. This is why Jesus can so quickly transition from speaking of the Spirit being present with his disciples to himself being present with his disciples. Shortly, he'll say, verses 16 through 20, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. There are a variety of ways to translate. It's a rich word. No one word will do it. But I really think, and I hope you see now, why I will often use comforter here. Because of what we've just seen. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is, is their comforter, another comforter. That's what he's holding out to them specifically in this promise of the Spirit. So, let me say it again. I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And you might think that's talking about that same promise where He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to, my, to Myself, that where I am there you may be also. You may think, oh, He switched gears here. He's giving the Spirit to them now, and He's saying, once more, He will come to them later. That's not what Jesus is saying at this point. Listen how he goes on. 
I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He's not saying, I'm going to come again and be with you again physically on my return. He's saying, Whenever the Spirit indwells you, I indwell you. Saints, let not your heart be troubled. If you know the Son, you know the Father. And by the Spirit, the Father and the Son are present with you. You know the way because the destination is already present with you. And the way is present with you with you. You have God and through God you come to God. You have God the Spirit. And through God the Son you come to God the Father. Let not your heart be troubled. Now tied to this doctrine of mutual indwelling, you have the doctrine of inseparable operations. That The persons of the Trinity, not only they each fully possess the divine nature. The divine nature is omnipresent. Such that you can't think of the Son being present in a place and the Father not being present there. They mutually indwell one another. But not only is there this mutual indwelling, they work inseparably. There is a distinct work. It's the Son who became incarnate. It's the Son who was crucified. It's the Spirit who anointed Christ. It's the Father who poured out His wrath and judgment on the Son. It's the Father who was pleased by the Son's sacrifice. There is a distinct working, but you see in the cross, they worked inseparably. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. The Spirit given words that the Son speaks and the Spirit wrought works that the Son performs are the works of the Father carried out by the Son and the power of the Spirit. This this work of inseparable operations, even as Christ is incarnate, he made plain in John 5, when he's speaking to those who were angry at him healing an invalid man on the Sabbath day, telling them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Inseparable operations, mutual indwelling. So do you see why he said, believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. Jesus goes on to tell them in that instance in John 5 that the works that he does are the testimony of the Father concerning him. So by these works, the Father is testifying to the Son, who the Son is. And by these works, then the Son is revealing to them who the Father is. And who the Father is is one who's testifying to us who the Son is. There's just this, this dance between the Father and Son, magnifying and making one another known in the power of the Spirit. And as such, doing this, they call for belief with these signs and wonders of the triune God, belief is called for. And Jesus is right now telling them, the sign of signs is about to be done. All the other signs were just signs pointing towards this sign, in a way. 
And the signs have all along, it's been stressed throughout John. These signs are written so that you might believe. And now he's telling his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Believe. The sign of signs does not call for your doubt. It does not call for your worry. It calls for faith. Comfort. Let not your heart be troubled. Faith in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mutually indwelling one another, working inseparably for the redemption of sinners. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in your triune God. You know the way. You know the where. Jesus' absence is not for your fear. It's for your comfort. Jesus' trouble was not a tragedy. It was conquest. Jesus was troubled. So that we might be comforted. But then surprisingly, Jesus transitions from his works to their works. Verse 12. Not only does he transition surprisingly from his works to their works. He tells them that they will do the works that he does. They will do even greater works. Why does Jesus make this transition? Remember that his aim is to comfort them. And in telling them that they're going to do greater works, he is demonstrating exactly what he'll say, what he says in 16 and verse 7. It is for your advantage that I go away. His going away is for their advantage. How so? This is one way. Now to understand this comfort that's being extended in this, to understand how it is, that they'll do the works that he does, that they'll do even greater works. To understand how that's possible, I think the key is just to first ask yourself, how is it it that they'll do greater works? What lies underneath greater works? First, notice that it's those who believe in him who will do these works. Those who believe in Him in exactly the way He's been calling for. They'll do these works. They'll do greater works. And the reason now why is, is because He goes to the Father. Whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. Because Jesus has ascended and is at the right hand of the Father, they will do greater works. Maybe this will make sense of it. Listen anew to Acts 1, 1 through 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then you read in 1.8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Of whose acts do you read in the book of Acts? If you have an older translation... King James, you'll probably read the Acts of the Apostles. That's true. In light of what we just read, it'd be better to say the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And it'd be better still to say the Acts of the Ascended Christ by the Spirit through His Apostles. How is it that they're said to be done to do greater acts? Not in competition to Jesus, but because of Jesus. They are His acts through His church as He sits at the right hand of the Father and sends His Spirit sending them into the world. 
And thus, thus it is that he says to them that they can ask whatever in his name that the Son might be glorified in the Father and he will do it. Those words are too often disconnected and isolated from everything that this passage is about. They have been domesticated. This is weapon, weapons-grade promises here, and we've domesticated it. John Piper says, probably the number one reason prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit, handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, Comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished, and to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send air cover when you need it. But what have millions of Christians done? We have stopped believing that we are in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peace and prosperity. And what did we do with the walkie-talkie? We tried to rig it up as an intercom in our houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the din. As a capstone to this discourse... We have Jesus' prayer in John 17, in which he will say, As you sent me into the world, so, have, so I have sent them into the world. Here he is assuring them they are not sent out alone. He is with them and whatever they need in that sending forth. It's theirs. So that the Son might, the Father might be glorified in the Son. All the, Reese's, all, all the resources that they need for the Father's name to be hallowed. All the resources they need for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of them are theirs for the asking. Because He was troubled. He purchased Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And their God is able to do far more abundantly than all that they think or ask. Listen again to the Great Commission. And see if Jesus' promises here don't make perfect sense in light of it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Whatever you ask in my name. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. He has all authority, so go. Whatever you need, ask and it's yours. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. Does that not explode with meaning in light of the comfort that he's extending to the disciples here in this passage? Does that not help you understand what it means? Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Saints, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of His Father from which He has sent His Spirit. He will gather all His scattered children home. And He has purposed to do so through us. And everything we need for that mission is ours for the asking in the Christ who has been given all things. And we've been given that Christ. He is with us. 
He's with us because He's not with us. We do greater works because they are His works. By His Spirit, through His people. He can offer us this comfort because He was troubled with us. But know this, He is troubled no more. He has entered fully into that joy that was set before Him for which He endured the cross. And so all the more then, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Let not your hearts be troubled. You know the Father in knowing Jesus. You know the way, you know the destination. Our Lord has prepared a place for us, He will come again. And until He does, He has sent us out as He was sent. In this world we will have troubled, but our hearts need not be troubled because Christ was troubled for us and He's now in heaven to be troubled no more and give us all comfort. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us that we are anxious about the things of this earth and not comforted By the Christ of heaven. And comforted. That when we are about his kingdom. Seeking it first. We can know. That that is our zeal. That's our longing. That's our joy. All that we need. It's ours for the asking. So, Father, may we go out confident with this knowledge, strong faith, not troubled sinfully, but comforted. For the crucified and risen Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.